you, Packy, for coming on and joining me on the show today. It's great to have you. You are the uh, author of the Not Boring Newsletter, uh, Investing with Not Boring Capital, advisor to A16Z Crypto, and more generally, just kind of playing the great online game, as you've called it, uh, which I think is a, a really interesting uh, way to phrase it. And it's a great piece on the Substack for people who want to go find that maybe before they listen into the rest of the episode. But uh, without any further ado, it's great to have you. I think the best place to start would be for those who don't know you, uh, if you could just sort of tell your story from as early as you're willing to start to uh, where you are today and talk about some of the decisions you made along the way. Yeah, well, first of all, thanks so much for for having me. It's it's an honor to be here among, you know, you've had a bunch of great guests and you've somehow turned the color blue into a trademark that uh that I think of when when I see it. Uh so congratulations on that. But yeah, going back, I guess early early beginning, I uh, grew up outside Philadelphia. Both my parents uh were consultants and then uh started their own businesses, so I have a little bit of that uh, entrepreneurial thing in in my background. Uh, now my sister runs her own company. My brother both works with me uh, and runs his own company, and and I'm kind of running, you know, this this hodgepodge of things under under the not boring banner. So I think that goes goes all the way back. Uh, you know, without doing the full history, I think there's probably a few a few different spots that pointed to where we are now. I remember when I was six years old. I think my dad's one of my dad's clients was the Miami Herald, the paper down in Miami. Uh, and so I was making my own like mini Miami Herald every day with post-it notes, kind of writing uh, a little newspaper. So that's probably the first time, first time that I wrote, uh, went to Duke out of school, came, you know, did, did the financing, went into banking, uh, was bored a little bit by that, had wanted to be an entrepreneur, wasn't technical, wasn't ready to start my own business, but started a uh, party bus company, um, on the side, like kind of nights and weekends, taught myself to like build a really, really crappy website and took buses from New York to the Jersey Shore and New York to the Hamptons. So that was really the first kind of time that I scratched that itch, left uh, left finance after a few years, was going to go to business school, last minute decided not to do that uh, and went to a company called Breather. We did on-demand meeting and workspace uh, in 10 different cities throughout the world. I started as our New York City general manager uh, and then did a bunch of stuff at the company, was VP of experience, which was a weird title for, I ran a real estate design, construction, operations, customer care, research, a bunch of a bunch of teams that dealt with the physical product there. Uh, when our CEO left, was in the office of the CEO for a while, which I loved. Uh, and then uh, we hired a, a management team uh, that had experience at companies like eBay and BuzzFeed and whatever. I remember sitting in one of our exec team meetings and saying a medium-sized word, I think it was enumerate, uh, and getting a bunch of blank looks from people in the room. And I was like, I think if I, you know, what I loved about Breather before was that it was this really, really hard problem. We had 300 plus spaces all around the world that we had to rent out through an app for an hour to multiple days at a time and deliver catering and clean them and do all this complicated stuff, trying to figure out how to make a business out of that. And and I think we had some really interesting kind of complex ways to do that. Getting all of that compressed down into like the simplest version of, of what that business could be just made me, uh, I think I was pulling my hair out a little bit and, and just kind of thought that I was going to lose my lose my edge if I didn't do something. So I took David Perel's online writing course, uh, started writing uh, just you know a, a weekly roundup of links, got in the practice of doing it, 
COVID hit, I quit the job at Breather. One thing led to another, and now I'm a full-time uh, newsletter writer, which is not what I ever would have expected to be doing with my my life. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, twists and turns around the journey. And uh, I know you told sort of like a longer version on Acquired, so people can go listen to that podcast as well if they're interested in, uh, you know, untoggling some of the detail there. But I thought one of the more interesting chapters or I guess, uh, you know, inflection points was like you mentioned, you were coming out of uh, finance and, uh, you know, looking to go to business school. I think you had your deposit in actually at uh, Chicago and yep. basically somehow came up with the conviction at that time to drop that path, including the deposit and uh, sort of double down on this recruiting process with Breather, which you weren't even assured you were like fully going to get a job with the company. Can you talk about like if you sort of rewind back to that moment in time, I don't know how easy or hard it might be, but like what gave you, you know, this isn't just like leaving one option on the table for another, like there's an opportunity cost or whatever, like you literally had a deposit in you're sort of foregoing some money on this idea that like, I can get this job with this startup that I haven't even gotten yet. Was that difficult? Or like, are you just sort of trusting your gut along the way? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think in retrospect, maybe it sounds a little dumber at the time. It, it, it kind of felt like the obvious thing to do as soon as I got that idea in my mind that like, I didn't really want to go to business school and it was just kind of delaying ultimately wanting to get into startups and, and doing something more entrepreneurial in a little bit of time. Once something flipped in my mind, it became like a really, really obvious choice that this is what I should be doing. I've always had a weird relationship with risk where like, I just, you know, it, you probably can tell this if you, if you read the newsletter, like my brain just sees kind of what can go right and doesn't think as much about what can go wrong. And that can be a really good thing. And I think it was in this case, although Breather wasn't a great financial outcome, but a great experience outcome, um, obviously can can be a bad thing in, in certain cases as well. But in this case, I really just, you know, I viewed it as I can go to business school, spend over $100,000 to then like at some point, maybe in the future, get a job at a startup or maybe go back into finance and do that a little bit longer so that I have the money to pay back business school and then go do what I want. And I was like, instead, I can just take a really significant pay cut because it will mean that I'm not actually like losing money like I would be going to business school. So I kind of have a couple of years to just experiment, make a lot less money than I did before and learn in this kind of more practical hands-on way. So in some ways, it almost seemed less risky because at least I was getting paid something and not paying something out of pocket and working kind of more closely towards what I wanted to be doing. Right. And then, so you get that great experience sort of a few or several years there, and then you sort of move on, decide this isn't for you anymore, or things change, circumstances within the company, whatever. You sort of get the idea that you want to do your own thing. And the timing is just like horrific because you're trying to start this like IRL, you know, communities business basically. And COVID hits like literally sort of the month that you're having your first in-person events in New York, I think it was. Yeah. Um, so you decide to sort of double down on this other thing you were doing coming out of the Rite of Passage course that you mentioned. You're just sort of fooling around a little bit with doing this, uh, you know, email newsletter and pulling some links together, doing a little bit of writing. Uh, you take the name from the IRL business, not boring, slap it on to the email newsletter you've been working on, which I think was called... Um, uh, what was it per my last email, something like that. It was. Yeah. And, uh, and then sort of that's how not boring as we know it was born. How did you sort of, again, you're sort of taking a risk. Uh, you thought you were starting this business. Now you're like, well, I'm just gonna do this writing, which I wasn't even thinking as like the main thing I was doing anymore. 
Um, you sort of doubled down on that. I think you gave yourself like maybe three months to see if you could sort of make something of it. What was yeah. that three months like going from like zero to one? Yeah. I mean, there's a couple of ways of looking, uh, looking at that timing. One, you know, it was bad timing to try to start something IRL. Two, it was incredible timing for me, frankly, because, you know, had it been a couple of months later, I might have raised money, I might have signed a lease. And if I'm being honest with myself in retrospect, and, you know, even the people close to me at the time were telling me not a particularly like great or scalable idea. I don't love networking and being out every night and all of that. So like, I don't think it was the exact right kind of uh, founder market fit. Like all of that kind of stuff, I think was a little bit wrong and I'm pretty stubborn. So I think I would have kept going had there not been something just like very clear, you can't go build something where people meet in person. Um, so I got a little bit lucky there uh, on the timing it can be, you know, compared to what it could have been. I'm, I'm imagining myself like going and hosting debates every night or something right now. And it's just not what I, what I should be doing. Uh, so, so happy to be doing the newsletter, but yeah, I mean, those, those first few months of the newsletter were interesting because it was the very beginning of COVID we were stuck inside. I had nothing to do, but, but right. I got COVID out of the way super early. I think I got it in March of 2020. Um, when I was writing some of my first pieces kind of under, under not boring, but I'd been sitting on the couch trying to bring not boring club online was preparing some like game show night that we were going to do on zoom when people were doing things uh, on zoom in the early days. And my wife just kind of looked at me and was like, what are you doing? And I looked back and I was like, yeah, what am I doing? I'm, I'm setting up like jeopardy night or something for seven people that are going to show up online. Like this just is not a thing. I do like writing. I've had a good time, uh, you know, writing the newsletter on the side for the last little bit. So like, what happens if I just go out and, and try to do this full time? I think we were probably at a thousand subscribers after a year at that point, maybe even less. Uh asked asked Pooja, my wife, if I could have three months of making zero money and, and having no plan other than the newsletter to to try to grow it into something. And I think kind of fairly immediately, uh, it started taking off, not in any crazy way. We did a product hunt, hunt launch and it uh kind of doubled the number of people that we had to 3000 and then kind of grew steadily from there. I was getting good feedback from people that I wasn't expecting to get good feedback from. And so there were all these like, you know, not tangible, not money in my pocket kind of signs, but just like little signs were like, okay, this feels like there could be something here. Let me keep doing it. I mean, I think timing was kind of perfect. People were stuck inside. They had nothing else to do but read and and spend time online. And I was writing thousands and thousands of words. And I don't think, you know, if I were doing that right now, people would have the attention span or the time to kind of start building a relationship with, with a newsletter like that. But uh, it was the right place and right time for it. And then at the end of three months, you know, it wasn't making any money on it still, but it had grown enough to like 5,000 or so people that it just felt like the right thing to keep trying to pursue and, and very glad that uh, that I did. Yeah, it's interesting what you're saying sort of reminds me of like, I always think of the advice, the general advice, like keep going, right? It's like, you know, just keep going and like eventually it'll work. And I think of that as like, on the one hand, some of the best advice ever, uh, if you're sort of like doing the right thing, but it's also like kind of some of the worst advice ever. If you're like doing totally. the wrong thing, you keep going. It's just like, totally futile. And uh, it sounds like, you know, the business that you were working on, you probably sort of thought like I, I sort of heard some of the rationale for why you started this business in the first place. And it seemed like a really good idea. But at the end of the day, to your point, like the founder product market fit wasn't completely there. Like it wasn't something that you would have enjoyed doing day in and day out to the degree that you sort of would have needed to to keep going. But then at the same time, you might have been sort of stubbornly persistent to see this thing through until 
there's a positive outcome. And next thing you know, like 10 or 15 years go by and you're working on this business that like you don't really want to be working on. Instead, you sort of had this uh, turn of fate or whatever it might be that uh, COVID hit and you got to focus on the newsletter, which was a much better fit for you personally, it sounds like. And yeah. that was something where keep going was excellent advice and eventually, you know, has proven to pay off, um, you know, going a little bit deeper into the newsletter and like the early days of writing and and how things have progressed since um, just zooming in on like the writing itself. How do you think like at that point, like, you know, you took a course, you're kind of just starting to write very consistently. It sounds like you might have done some writing previously, but this is like more of a um, you're on a schedule and everything like that. How has your writing you know, evolved or developed over time or changed over time in terms of, you know, whether it's like the system you have for writing itself or like uh, the style or the topics that you like to cover, things you like to write about, any changes that you can sort of think about, like looking back, like, wow, that was like actually pretty different back then versus what I'm doing now? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. I think in terms of process, it's, uh, it's probably changed embarrassingly little. Um, you know, you'd think that three years into doing this, I'd have like a really nice process where on, you know, Monday morning, I send the email, I give myself a few hours off and then I'm back and I read 50 things and I'm taking diligent notes. And then I do an outline. Like it just does not work like that at all for me still where it's, you know, spending a few days trying to figure out what I'm going to write about panicking a little bit. Uh, kind of researching as I write and going back and forth. And now ChatGPT has become, you know, part of that process where like I, I feel like I can push a little bit further out on what I'm writing about and have it kind of check me at least and say, like, is this thing that I'm trying to say, like, does that make any sense at all? Is it internally consistent? Whatever. I think the biggest change in terms of content is in the beginning, I really wanted to it took me a while to to get to writing about kind of tech and business strategy because I was you know, worried that Ben Thompson did it so well that there was no room in the space for anybody else. So I wanted to do something unique. And so I did very explicit kind of intersections of something in tech or strategy or economics compared or mixed with something from pop culture. So like uh, creative destruction and the Mickey Mouse Club or all those Zooms that we were on that we were talking about uh, and a Hey Arnold episode where they just had like way too many watches and and couldn't get rid of them because there was a supply glut and what was going on in oil at the time, like all this stuff combined. And over time, I tried to keep kind of the fun, approachable tone from those pieces, but uh, maybe drop the pop culture thing because it ended up being kind of trying to figure out like two different essays at the same time and then melt them together. And it just became like a ton of work and a little bit forced in some cases. And so uh figured that what people appreciated was the approachability uh, and the tone for more serious topics that were written in a more fun way. Uh, so I think that's probably the biggest change. I'd say, you know, probably a little bit more explicitly writing with an optimistic bent. I think that was something that was just naturally there. It's just naturally how my brain works and how I see the world. But, uh, you know, now we read a piece called The Weekly Dose of Optimism every week. Uh, so more explicit about that. Uh, and then, you know, I think still trying to find big, exciting, hard to understand things, learning it myself in real time, and then uh, trying to write it in a way that I could explain as I'm there, that I could understand as I'm learning it. Uh, so that people who uh, are interested in the subject and are smart, but might not be as familiar with something uh, can, can dig their teeth into it. 
Right. I know you mentioned uh, you mentioned Ben Thompson and like I've seen you said, uh, you know, Ben Thompson plus Bill Simmons, you're kind of like the baby of the two uh, in, in a way in the way that you write and things. What do you see in those guys in particular, like each of them? Like what aspects do you think sort of when you say like, you know, you're the combination of the two in a way, what aspects from each do you seek to, you know, emulate or do you aspire to emulate uh, from the two of those guys? Because they're very, you know, one's business focused, one's sports focused. I know you're interested in both. Um, curious to hear sort of how you look at them. Yeah, I mean, definitely an aspirational comparison. I think they're both better by uh, leaps and bounds at what they do than, than I am. But I think on the Ben Thompson side, it's it's really kind of keeping up with everything that's going on in tech and applying like a very clear lens to understand what's going on to uh, fit the things that are happening now into a historical context. I, I just don't think anybody does kind of tech strategy analysis better than Ben Thompson does. So that's the aspiration on that side. And then on the Bill Simmons side, I do think it's it's more of that tone and comparing, you know, sports, which is his main topic to things happening in pop culture and, you know, naming different weird concepts like the Ewing theory or whatever else, like making it really fun uh, and, and like infusing that pop culture angle uh, into something that is covered very much the same way, pretty much everywhere else where it's a bunch of talking heads just yelling at each other and people getting angry and all that kind of stuff and and having arguments, which is really fun. And I love regular sports talk radio, but he just took this unique angle to something that so many people had done for so long uh, and was able to kind of stand out by doing that. And so trying to infuse kind of the Bill Simmons fun with the the Ben Thompson, uh, you know, strong analysis was kind of the goal with that that comparison. Yeah, well, I uh, I feel like that's really worked pretty well. I mean, you're obviously it's called not boring, and it tends to be not boring. Uh, it's like very fun the way that you write about business, which is traditionally like not you know it's more of like a serious thing. Obviously, it's like not that you know the first thing people think of when they think of like business strategy and analysis isn't like oh yeah fun like for sure. <laughs> um, so it's it's an interesting combination. It's obviously working out very well and and attracting. A large number of people and, and probably growing uh well obviously growing but hopefully you know growing for a long time to come um and so as it's been growing you know you mentioned after like three months you saw some growth but still not monetizing a few months thereafter maybe still the case but now you're monetized in sort of more ways than one uh, i think the first was doing like these sponsored posts which was sort of a pretty interesting like contrarian thing to do given that like you wouldn't it wasn't like natural at the time for to, to think like oh like yeah I'm, i want to read this person's article about like a company or essay about a company that like the company paid them to write it's like sort of counterintuitive but it makes yeah. sense from the perspective of like there's all these like hit pieces out there from you know traditional outlets or whatever it might be that obviously the company's not paying them to write a hit piece on them but it's like everything feels so, like so disaligned like what's wrong with a company paying someone who's writing they like to do a piece on them and obviously you sort of trust the person to be reasonably objective but a little optimism doesn't hurt what gave you that sort of uh you know what what spurred that like monetization model to begin with and then if you could talk about like well maybe that first but then maybe we'll talk about like sort of stages of monetization thereafter obviously you've sort of attached a fund to what you're doing now um and other elements as well yeah, I think uh, the credit for that goes to Nick Abazid, who's now at Ramp, uh, who was at Main Street at the time, who reached out uh, and asked about doing that. And I really like the first time when I when I wrote about Main Street, 
at the top of the post, I was like, as clear as I could possibly be that this is a sponsored post, thought it was something that was useful for the audience. A lot of startup founders, a way to get money back, wanted to be super, super clear that it was, uh, that it was sponsored and ask people like, if you hate this, let me know that you hate it. I won't do it again. And I think people ended up kind of liking it. That one, you know, I think was probably shorter and more of an ad over time. They've become these like really in-depth pieces. I think the longest sponsored post I wrote was 16,000 words or something. Uh, and the way that I, the way that I view them is I wouldn't write about a company because they're willing to pay me that I wouldn't want to write about anyway. And the types of companies and the types of pieces that I'm writing about anyway are optimistic because I'm picking companies that I want to write about because I'm excited about them. And so this is almost a way for them to just kind of like jump the line. It's companies that I, with infinite time, would write about anyway, but it's a way for them to to kind of skip to the front of the line. Uh, and I, I find too that when companies are paying for the post, they put more into it and they give me more access so I can get you know, all of their past board decks and interviews with their founders and customers and the, you know, people who might be critics of the company and just get a lot more effort from their side than if I reached out and I was like, hey, I'm interested in writing a story about your company. Maybe now people would respond, but certainly in the beginning, I think having that kind of skin in the game actually got people to to give me more access. One of the high points of the sponsored post uh, journey was when Ben Thompson talked about it uh, on his podcast. And I was like, this is actually an interesting model because one of the problems and one of the reasons that he didn't cover startups was that you can't get access to their financials. You can't get access to how they're actually doing behind the scenes. Uh, and so having this piece of it, like a way for them to feel motivated to give me all of this information was a good way to kind of overcome uh, a little bit of the problem. Obviously, like, you know, it, it sets me up for, for critique when things don't go right. I mean, I think the assumption that I have when I'm writing about companies is like, I'm writing about the thing that excites me about this company. I will write about the risks, but like the default assumption when you're writing about early stage startups is that, that like they're probably going to fail at some point. And like, here's what it would take for them not to fail. And here's like the angle that I see on why they might not fail. Uh, but despite all of that, you know, like if you write a sponsor post on a company and then they end up failing, it's an easy opportunity to dunk. So there's risk, but I actually think, you know, in terms of the access that we're able to get and the depth that we're able to go into on those pieces, it, it's worth it. Yeah, it's interesting because you you went into it. I mean, I'm sure there's like a lot of different aspects that you sort of could think about in advance. But like the key thing was like, you know, how do we monetize this thing without doing like traditional ads? And you come to this pretty nice solution that seems like it could work. And like you're a little hesitant with Main Street, but like, you know, give it a shot. And then it turns out to solve this like completely different problem that I don't know if you anticipated, which is like this amazing access to information that you can't really get with the other posts. And uh just the effort on the company side. It's almost like, you know, I know from doing these podcasts, like, you know, I do all the prep work and everything like that. It's all on me. But if you had a guest come in who is like, you know, paying you and, you know, giving you all the information that you need to prep or a lot of it, at least that's like, you know, a double win at least. And there's probably some other good things that come out of it as well. Uh, one of which I guess is the investing ability. So some of these guys come in and they're paying you for a sponsored post and, you might be able to invest in them. I think that's actually how the first angel investment that you did came about. Is that right? That was not a sponsor post. That was a friend of mine who I'd known for a while back when he and his brother were doing, uh, they were trying to figure out how to make walls that were like essentially robot walls that could sh uh, shift and move and you could snap plugs in in certain spots that 
addressed an issue that if it had worked would have been really useful for a company like Breather where people want different size rooms all the time, but real estate is kind of what it is and doesn't change. So I'd known uh, Fed Novikov for a while. He was starting this company apt. It was based on, uh, it, the company wasn't based on, but like a lot of their strategy was based on something that uh, I had written kind of like pre not boring. And so he's like, would you mind just like writing about our company, I think it could be kind of interesting one. Uh, we didn't do an SPV on that one, but I had a friend who was doing an SPV in the company. So I pointed people uh, in the direction of that. And then the SPV filled up and it was really great for the company and like everything just kind of worked together. So I was like, oh, wow, maybe I'll start doing this a little bit more, not on the sponsor side. If we're doing you know an SPV, then it's just part of the process. We have to write this memo anyway. Um, but that's yeah, kind of how one thing led to another. I, I started doing a few SPVs, writing about the companies. Uh, and then when that became a little bit too much of a pain, doing it one off each time, both for me and for, I think, you know, some excellent companies wouldn't necessarily want to take an SPV, particularly in that market when they had a million different choices, uh, I decided to to go the fund route. Right. And that was like a pretty quick transition, right? From like starting angel investing to actually raising a formal fund. I think now you're on fund three uh, already after like a pretty short period of time. Can you sort of intro uh, your thinking about like, how do I attach uh, a fund to everything I'm doing with the newsletter, why it makes sense and how sort of like some of the early um, investing, like what you've learned in the early stages of of doing this investing? Yeah, it's probably the the number one question that i get from lps and potential lps is like when do you when do you have time to do the fun stuff because you're writing like how do you split them how do you think about these two two separate things when are you going to stop writing and just focus fully on the fund i like really 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 view them uh as as part of the same thing you know i think the writing helps a lot uh, particularly on the sourcing side and the ability to win deals uh, i think when we write about even you know, categories and not companies specifically, it kind of plants a flag and and lets people know that we're excited about that particular space. So if we start writing more about biotech or if we start writing more about space, it's just a uh, good way of saying like, we're, we're interested here and we have at least an understanding and hopefully an interesting view on what's going on in this market. And then it's just a very clear value add for for founders when you know we can write a check and then help tell their story both kind of publicly and behind the scenes and help with board decks and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, and so have designed kind of a, I think a fairly consistent fund strategy where we're not going to be the lead check, we're not taking board seats, uh, but we want to be the second or third biggest check in uh, in a round in an early stage company, kind of pushing the frontiers in some way or another that could be on the bit side and on that side of things uh, that ends up being you know a fair amount of crypto and infrastructure. It could be on the atom side, which ends up being uh, you know a fair amount of biotech. We're looking at a chips company right now. Uh, we're looking at a bunch of companies in kind of energy and climate. Um, but these companies that are the ones that we're naturally excited about and want to write about and want to dig into those categories and want to talk to people in the space uh, are the ones that we end up uh, investing in. And I think it all just kind of fits together better than I could have anticipated. It was not at all part of the plan to to start a fund from the beginning, but I think the two go uh, really well together when, when you do it right. Right. And like, did you uh, consider, I think you're using AngelList, right? But is it, it's not a rolling fund or is it? It's not a rolling fund, so it's it's a regular fund with AngelList as the as the fund admin. Did you consider the rolling fund at all, or um, did you like how did you come to AngelList traditional fund as sort of uh, what made most sense for you? Yeah, I thought about the the rolling fund a little bit. 
it, I frankly didn't give it a ton of thought um, just because I, I wanted it to feel more like a real fund. I think AngelList is kind of phenomenal and underrated. It's just like a good fund admin product. They keep moving kind of up the stack in terms of fund size, in terms of their capabilities. Having, you know, I work with uh, someone over there named Colt uh, who, who works on the fund with me, uh, who's just excellent. Like it's like having another member of the team. They just handle a bunch of the back office stuff that it frankly doesn't make sense for a small fund uh, that's not leading to to deal with. Um, so they've just been a really phenomenal fund admin. You know, I'm excited to see them kind of move up and go more institutional and hopefully can kind of keep growing with them, uh, as long as, as long as I go, but it just felt like a natural fit having worked with the team, uh, on doing a bunch of, a bunch of the SPVs over there and just seeing how smooth everything is that could have been very expensive and a lot of back and forth and paperwork and, and back office stuff that just got taken off the plate when I'm doing both kind of writing and investing as a solo GP and the only person at the time writing uh, on the newsletter, it just, you know, having something that was able to take all of that off my plate was, was huge, but I did want it to feel like a real fund and not have it be uh, a rolling fund. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. I have some, you know, a little bit of experience with working with uh, Angelus myself and they're amazing. And like all of these platforms at the end of the day, it's just amazing what you can do as one person. Uh, but at the same yeah. time, like I know you're bringing, a team together now uh your brother's doing some writing and i think he's helping you on the investing side as well um how do you think about like you mentioned you know incorporating chat gpt into your writing a little bit uh obviously you wrote the piece on uh you know talking about plugins and how you know how you see the future for open ai and everything like that um how do you think about like in the world we are in today where things are changing at a million miles an hour ai seems to be the the thing right now obviously but a year or two ago it was crypto and think we would both agree that crypto is going to have its you know moment in the sh in the sunlight again pretty soon hopefully uh, yeah. or or at some point uh, whether it's you know 6 months or a couple years whatever it might be uh everything's moving like very fast particularly on the ai side how do you think like you know should i build a team of people should i like just go all in on chat gpt and learn how to use these plugins and like see what i can do with myself or a team of 2 or a team of 3 or whatever it might be um, it seems like building anything, I mean, obviously what you're doing is fairly unique in and of itself that you're sort of started with the sub stack and you attach the fund. Um, you got like a jobs board as well. You're just sort of piecing some things together in a formula that we're seeing sort of other people are doing kind of similar things, but everyone's like got their own flavor and there's very few of these people sort of doing it well and successfully in the early goings. Uh, I'm just curious, I guess, on team building versus sort of like platform using or whatever you might want to call it. Yeah. Um, how you think about building, not boring here forward. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the answer for almost everything, like, you know, something probably that I over-index on uh, more than, more than the average person would just be differentiation. So if there's something that I'm not going to be the best at, like doing back office and fund admin work, work with a platform, like, you know, take that off, off your plate. Uh, that's not where, where not boring is going to differentiate or not boring capital is going to differentiate. And so uh, working with somebody like Angelist who can be really, really excellent in that and can use AI where it makes sense to do some of those things, like, please take that off my plate, uh, and, and do as good of a job as you possibly can. And so that I don't, you know, uh, I don't have to try to build world-class capabilities on something that's not going to make any difference to, to founders or to my LPs. Um, in terms of the newsletter itself, you know, I'm, I don't see myself probably having uh, 
ChatGPT even write a first draft or certainly write a piece for a very long time. Like where I try to use it now is if I don't understand a particular, if I have an idea, but like there's some point that I want to make that I'm not sure if I'm making it right. Like it's more of a conversation that I'll have with it. So I think it, you know, to be cliche about it, like it enhances me, but it doesn't replace me yet. And maybe GPT-5 will, and it'll be a different conversation. In terms of team building, I mean, I, I for what we do, really like the idea of finding people who are just exceptional at a particular thing. Uh, and so, you know, we have Elliot uh, Hirschberg on the team, who's our biotech partner, who uh, who is getting his PhD in genomics at Stanford. He writes my favorite uh biotech newsletter, Century of Biology, which is how we found each other. And so I want to find, even if it's part-time, uh, I want to find people who excel at a particular thing that I think we should be really, really good at. In this case, you know, it's biotech and we hopefully can find an Elliot in in space and climate and energy and in a few different uh, different areas. And then on back office stuff, like let's use Substack and, and not reinvent the wheel and try to build uh, build our own email client all that kind of stuff. I'm happy to to outsource to platforms, but I want to have a few very exceptional people uh, on the team. So obviously Substack's been sort of like the go-to for uh, people writing newsletter, newsletters and essays for a little while now. Twitter's obviously changing pretty quickly with Elon at the helm. Are you seeing anything there that has like piqued your interest just in terms of, you know, the subscriptions or the videos or anything going on on Twitter that you're keeping an eye on of like, oh, you know, not boring's next big move might be to do something more explicitly on Twitter than, you know, just your your tweeting or something informal like that, where you might actually sort of uh, invest your time and energy in Twitter as a platform more than you have in the past? Or um, is everything kind of early and uninteresting a little bit so far? I've like never, you know, I've written about Twitter a bunch of times. Uh, I've been a big fan. I wouldn't, you know, not boring wouldn't be what it is without Twitter. I've met a bunch of really great people through Twitter. I was optimistic about Elon taking Twitter over. I can't imagine making a big investment in the, it just seems too unstable to make a big investment on Twitter right now. And I know personally, like I still use Twitter. I deleted the app from my phone, but then I'll go on the mobile version. Like it, it's certainly some sort of, some sort of addiction, but I don't feel good about it. Like I really used to like love being on Twitter and I don't love being on Twitter anymore. Um, and I've talked to a bunch of people who I think feel feel the same way about it. it it's just like a, a weirder platform to me, at least, than, uh, than it used to be and not weird in a good way. Uh, I think Twitter used to be good weird. Um, so I can't, I can't see myself right now. I'm open to changing it, but I can't see myself right now uh, investing too much in Twitter. I think if anything, like I've taken it less seriously. My tweets have gotten worse. I don't care if they get engagement, like all that, that kind of stuff. I've just kind of stopped caring about because it doesn't seem worth, uh, worth the mental energy. Yeah, it's interesting. I uh, I don't know what to make of Twitter myself either. I, I uh, joined like very late. I mean, I played around with it like, you know, a decade ago or whatever in the early days, but then didn't, I just sort of ignored it and then got on, you know, three years ago, I think something like that. And in the beginning, it helped sort of get the podcast off the ground a little bit, build a small little following, whatever, learned a lot of things, learned about people who I wasn't sort of aware of, stuff like that. And now I'm sort of more on a similar page as you are, where it's like, you know, I just, this doesn't really make me feel great to like be on yeah. this, you know, for several hours a week or whatever it might be. And you just get sort of trapped in it. It's like, 
it's so hard. I think Paul Graham had this thing about it where it's like, it's so good and so bad that you can't really figure out if it's like net good or net bad because it's just like so impactful, uh, basically. And so I don't know, I'm kind of like you, I delete the mobile app and then I end up on the web safari or whatever. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. I'm trying my and best. And then it's just to... frustrating. because <laughs> It's like a worse, you're still doing it on your phone and it's like a slightly worse uh, experience because you're not using the native app and it's not you know, Twitter's fault that the experience is bad because you're not using the product that you should be. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I feel like I used to learn a bunch on Twitter and now it's just like videos of people beating up homeless people. And it, it's like, Maybe maybe I've like lingered on those videos too long when they when they pop up in the for you feed, but just like the overall tone, I would say, and maybe it's a bear market. Like I think there's other factors that are non Twitter related, but like the overall tone is just not as fun or educational or just like kind of something where every time I I catch myself on Twitter, I'm like, ah man, what a waste of time that just was. So have you played around with any, uh, you know, do you think there's going to be like a next Twitter that sort of feels like the positive energy or the good stuff that you used to get from being on Twitter, whether it's, you know, Farcaster or Lens or one of the crypto oriented, you know, social platforms? Are you playing around with any of that stuff or yeah. thinking about what might be next in that space? Yeah. So I, I'm on, you know, I think probably pinned uh, in my arc browser on my like kind of home, the home sidebar. I have blue sky, which seems kind of like fun and weird, uh, but still very much Twitter. Um, I have Substack notes, which I wish they hadn't been a little bit more opinionated on making it more kind of writing and ideas focused. It, it does some things really well. I like the quoting ability. I like the ability to tag other writers, all of that, but like it does feel a little Twittery. Uh, and then Farcaster, I think is probably the most, uh, you know, particularly in the context of crypto, the most educational and the most that feels like what I liked about Twitter when I started using it a lot more in in you know 2020, uh, where I'm learning a lot from being there, where people are going back and forth and having uh, having interesting conversations. I think the promise in something like Farcaster or you know Lens or a protocol on top of which a bunch of apps can build is that hopefully you lower the bar and let people experiment a little bit more. Like I don't love that all of the kind of Twitter alternatives are very much Twitter. Like I'm definitely from the Eugene Way status as a service school or like there needs to be some new proof of work and some new way that people can kind of stand out in a new platform for it to really, really break out. And so what I hope for these open protocols is that they bring down the cost of developing new social products so low and, and you already have your username set up and you can help fix the cold start problem and all of that such that people can like really experiment and try uh, try new things. We'll, we'll see. I would love, 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 love an algorithm that like encouraged novelty in some way. Um, and I don't know exactly how that would work, but like seeing all of the, you know, the AI threads happening right now, it's like the exact same format because that format works. I want to see an algorithm that does like the opposite thing where the more novel your idea or the more novel, the format you use, the more it gets elevated. Uh, but you know that I'm not a product person, so I, I have no idea how that would how that would work or if that would work. But I do want to see a little bit more uh, experimentation in in these new social products. Yeah, I, I forget. Uh, it's interesting you say that. I forget if I tweeted this or I was thinking it or something like that. I might have taken a note or something. But I was like, because those exact threads that you're talking about are like probably the top of my list of things that make me want to get off Twitter when I'm on Twitter and like not open yeah. it and end up in the web app like we we're talking about or whatever. But uh, 
I think like the, the thing I was thinking about is like, you know, the algorithm could probably figure out like, hey, is this like one of those Twitter threads that you sort of know it when you see it? And can I as a user, like you can't do this on Twitter today and maybe they could install some setting, but it's more easy to easy to imagine with these different protocols, like an app could come out that lets you sort of, uh, you know, adjust in your settings. Like I actually don't want to see any of these threads. Like if it looks like this type of thread thing, like if it has a thread score of like a 10 out of 10 or nine out of 10, <laughs> yep. like I don't want to see it. And also to your point on like novelty, it's like, you know, that to me sort of counter counters the uh, like current thing aspect of the social media as well, where it's like, if everyone is tweeting about like, you know, uh, this was a, it was a great Elon's interview with CNBC yesterday or two days ago or whatever. It was a great interview. Yeah. I really liked it. But like, I don't want literally every tweet or like when, you know, he it's weird because he's like now the current thing on his own social media thing all the time, basically. But uh, when he hired the CEO, like I swear my feed was like, um or when he announced that he was hiring the ceo and it wasn't yet known who it was like every other tweet was like a female version of elon as like a picture like <laughs> saying it was going to be that per like alana or whatever and then yeah the second one was uh i forget who it was it's another like pretty dumb joke and i was like i this is just like i'm getting dumber basically on here so you should be able to like sort of down rank like the current thing as well and i think that to me is like part of the um Part of the appeal of the protocols is that people can design whatever apps they want and use the same like information uh, that's across the protocol and surface it in different ways and give people different options. I don't know how it's all going to play out. And I think the big step that hasn't yet been sort of achieved is whether it's like BitCloud or Farcaster, any of these, they, they haven't really, maybe Lens has done it. I'm not really as active on, on Lens or whatever. Okay. I'm mostly on Farcaster these days, but um I haven't really seen like a big ecosystem of clients where like a ton of them or like, you know, even a few of them or a couple of them are like super popular. It tends to be like BitClout failed to get off of BitClout. Farcaster yep. for me, I'm mostly using, you know, Warpcast is I think is what the app's called now. Um, and that, you know, step one of going from not so much zero to one, but like one to two in terms of clients seems like a pretty pivotal thing that's going to need to be overcome. A hundred hundred percent agree. It's interesting your point on the the current thing, because there is some of that 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 you know we lost that everybody used to watch the same shows and everybody used to watch the news and kind of be on the same page and so there were all these cultural moments that aren't there to the same extent and so it is fun sometimes when that thing happens on Twitter is I do want the ability to toggle that on and off. Like for the world cup finals, I want to toggle that on and I want it to all be that. And I love the fact that everybody around the whole world is tweeting about the same thing. But to your point, when it's just these like little micro dramas or like everybody making the same joke over and over again, like that's, that's not as fun. So yeah, we need, we need a, a product genius and like a social media savant to come out and kind of rethink the, the interfaces and and how that could work. I feel like AI probably helps sift through a bunch of this stuff, but there really are times when I want us all to be really, really excited about it. I think, you know, Elon is like the the great uh, duality of man kind of test or, or example or whatever now, where like, I think SpaceX launches end up being these like incredibly inspiring events that at least my corner of Twitter gets really, really excited about. And I want to be a part of that. And I want everybody to be talking about that. But like, do I want everybody to be talking about, uh, you know, the way that Twitter handled Turkey? 
like after the first four tweets, I like kind of get people's two takes on that. Some people are going to hate it no matter what. Some people, Elon, you know, to steal the Trump thing could shoot somebody in the face on Fifth Avenue and he'd have a million people in the replies defending him in the same exact way. And so when it's that predictable, then it it gets kind of boring pretty quickly. Yeah, I think uh, not all current things are are equal is the uh, yeah. sort of moral of the story. And there are definitely some where it feels nice to be like a part of something. Uh, I think obviously that's like lacking a lacking feeling or sense for like a lot of people just given, you know, everyone's like working remotely from home, like literally on their own all day versus used to be in an office or whatever it might be in communities, like in-person communities seem to be, you know, not like they used to be and whatnot. And so not really sure what, what replaced all that. And like you said, we need a, a product genius or something to come in and and I'm not the guy, but maybe someone listening is and, and we'll build something like this uh, that can sort of solve some of these problems. Um, so zooming out a little bit, uh, coming back to not boring, uh, I think we've got like five, 10 minutes left and, uh, you know, appreciate the time and everything like that. I want to hear a little bit, your, uh, your zoomed out, like roadmap for not boring to the extent that you have one It's totally fair to be like, you know, taking things one day at a day, one time, one day at a time. And like thinking about what I'm doing now and not too forward looking in the future, but you did mention like, you know we could find like a space guy who's like our bio guy or an AI guy who's like our bio guy. So suggest like maybe you're thinking about bringing in more like domain specific people on the writing side, just any ideas that you have for the future of what you're building and uh, you know, what not boring might look like three, five, 10 years from now. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think my overall approach is, is fairly one day at a time and try to make the content as good as possible and, and all of that. But if I do zoom out and look to the future a little bit, I mean, I think that's that's the big one is is can we broaden the kind of base of of the types of of stories that we're able to tell really well, right? Like I think there's going to be a lot of really important stuff that happens in biotech that will get drowned out by the stuff happening on Twitter because everybody's familiar with Twitter and everybody like is kind of part of that ongoing conversation and can understand the concepts really, really easily. Whereas like the bio stuff is going to be more important, but it does take a little bit more knowledge and nuance to appreciate. And so like, how do you both tell the story in a compelling way without losing that nuance and get people excited about that or get people excited about what's happening in space. Or, you know, I think there's been a really good push kind of on the climate side recently towards, towards energy abundance and all of that, as opposed to just uh degrowth or, or whatever, but like, how do you tell those stories in a way that people really understand what's going on and get familiar with the players say in fusion, right? Like we're at this really interesting moment after 70 years of fusion research where, it's been, you know, the baton has a little bit been passed from government-funded, large-scale international projects to this diffusion of 30 or so kind of commercial fusion companies, each taking different approaches and now really racing to that commercialization finish line. Like people should know the names of the people running those companies and know a little bit about the different approaches that they're taking and be able to stay abreast of of their ability to kind of get to commercialization. Cause if that happens, then everything changes. And, you know, I'm maybe the right guy to write, be like, all right, here's me as like a medium intelligence guy coming in from the outside and trying to understand what's important. And I feel like most of the audience is kind of in the same spot that I am on Fusion, where you kind of think that it's important, but you don't really understand it. So I can write that intro piece. But then in terms of like 
really staying abreast of what's happening and thinking about how the different business models might work, but there's probably someone better in the world uh, who can tell that story in a little bit of the not boring style, but with their own twist and with their own knowledge. So, you know, to the extent that that we do expand and grow, I do think that's the way that we we do it. And I want to push that on both the the venture side and the newsletter side and have it all work together that we're both investing in and telling the stories of the companies that are uh, that are pushing things forward. Like, you know, obviously the market is not great and the market for startup funding is not great and all of that kind of stuff. But this feels like we're in the beginning of a decade or two decade period where so much is going to change and hopefully so much is going to change for the better. And so part of, you know, part of the the unintentional mission, I mean, I think the official mission is now to make the world more optimistic, but part of the, part of the unintentional mission is like, just get people to not take such a pessimistic and negative stance to kind of anything new that's trying and to not view failures as like this end of the world thing where there's like all these nefarious characters running around. Like certainly in some cases there are nefarious characters, but for the most part, People are trying something really hard. They're raising the money that they think they need to be able to do it. And oftentimes those hard things don't work out. Like how do you, how do you celebrate that uh, no matter what? And then like rally behind the ones that actually are working so that we can uh, build towards something that is going to be good for a lot of people. Yeah. So you mentioned, uh, you know, the mission, make the world more optimistic. You had a great piece called optimism, which you wrote. I think a great place to end is to talk a little bit about like, why is that your mission? That's not like an obvious mission for a business, you know, newsletter or, or whatever, not boring or, you know, I, I think no, like abbreviated title can really capture what you're doing <laughs> with not boring very briefly, but regardless, make the world optimistic. Isn't like a super optim, a uh, super, uh, it is very optimistic. It's not an obvious uh, mission. Uh, so I'm curious, like, how did you come to that? And, uh, you know, you mentioned, you sort of have hinted at like the mainstream media just doesn't really do tech any favors for some reason seems to kind of enjoy like you know putting down people who have failed and trying to tear down people who are succeeding things like this um i think a, a great place to end basically would be sort of your what why optimism is so important to you and, and the mission of not boring yeah i mean i think it's like i mentioned a couple of times probably just the way that i'm naturally wired to see the world but i think as i've written Not Boring and been out there writing about companies for the past few years and invested in companies and gotten to know these founders. I, I don't have, like, I think the mainstream media, like, I don't even like using the phrase mainstream media because I don't think it's a bad thing. Uh, do I think, like, you know, journalism is what it used to be? Like, maybe not, but a lot of things aren't what they used to be, or at least, like, don't feel like they used to be. So I don't know if it's necessarily that. But there's just this, like, overall attitude on the internet and maybe it's Twitter, maybe it's the bear market again. I don't know. Where like snark wins and figuring out like the best way to dunk on something wins. We have a company uh in the portfolio called Pipe Dream that I think I talked about in that piece uh that's doing hyper logistics. They're doing tubes with robots under cities to deliver things in, you know, under a dollar and under 10 minutes. And it's this like huge ambitious thing. And I remember Garrett, the CEO, tweeted about the company and just got ripped apart for the ambition that they were going after and the, literally like the easiest dunk in the world to call it a pipe dream. And like, I remember seeing that he handled it great. I was more bothered by it than he was. And then yesterday they're getting a ton of love because they announced that they signed a deal with Wendy's where they're going to be doing delivery from inside the restaurant out to the car so people can just drive in and pick up. And then it enables autonomous delivery down the line. 
And so like just seeing those things where like people are doing these really hard, impossible sounding things, getting dunked on in the short term, and then like actually going out and executing on it. If you could just make their lives a little bit easier and celebrate people doing these things that are, uh, you know, the natural inclination is to dunk on them for being for being so hard or out there sounding. I think you just encourage uh, encourage more big shots on goal. Um, and so I think that's that's really it is just kind of seeing the reaction to things that I'm excited about and seeing people's automatic reaction, maybe because of the way that they read about it in the press, maybe just because it's the easiest way to get likes or maybe because like they just actually don't think it's going to work. But I don't know. I just getting to see, like, see how the, the blood, sweat and tears that people are pouring into these things that then other people are like, ah, that's never going to work or that's stupid. I, I just like that bu bugs me to no end. And so uh, if we can figure out a way to explain one, that a lot of these things are going to fail and that's totally fine. But then two, that some of them are going to work and it's it's really going to uh, hopefully make the world better for a lot of people. It feels like a good uh, a good thing to be able, be able to do. I mean, you brought up crypto before. I think that's a great example of like everybody's jumping on it while it's down. I think VR is my favorite example or metaverse right now where like that's been getting dunked on for the past X number of months. And then Apple's going to come out with their headset and it's going to be awesome. And people are going to be like, that's actually pretty cool. Like it's not the stupid Facebook metaverse, but like, this is pretty cool. And like everything goes through the Gar Gartner hype cycle and it gets overhyped for a little while and then it gets dunked on. And then, so like, that's just part, part of life. But I don't know. I think things, uh, given the right, given the right shot and the right smart people behind them end up kind of working out the end. And so if we could just skip the middle part where people are getting shit on for, doing the thing that they they feel called to do i would i would love that to be the case totally agree and uh very much rooting for you guys on, on your mission you guys are doing the uh weekly dose of optimism i think everyone could use at least a daily dose if not an hourly dose <laughs> of optimism and twitter's not necessarily delivering that all the time so uh hopefully we can get it from not boring or not boring inspires a bunch of people to just be more optimistic uh, I, I tend to sort of suffer or benefit from the same affliction that you've described of just generally <laughs> taking a very optimistic view on things sometimes to a fault uh but it feels like a pretty pleasant way to uh to be most of the time so anyway speaking of pleasant very good good time speaking with you packy appreciate you coming on the show and and taking the time uh where can people go to uh you know get engaged obviously follow the newsletter uh follow you on twitter even if you uh aren't paying as much attention these days uh, and you know, can people go and invest in your fund? If not this one, future ones, uh, where can people go to just get involved? Yeah. So, uh, you can follow the newsletter at notboring.co. Uh, I'm on Twitter at PackEM. I want to be there less, but I'm still tweeting dumb stuff and probably just putting a little less thought into what I tweet. So apologies in advance. Uh, and then, yeah, I mean, accredited investors can uh, potentially invest in the fund. I wrote a post on it uh, earlier in the year. Uh, so if you look up Not Boring Fund 3, there's a link to an Airtable there to to submit interest. But uh, I think notboring.co and PackEM on Twitter are probably the best best spots. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks again, Packy. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This was fun.